you're a first-time visitor, no, this is not normal. This is not how it usually goes. Uh, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Uh, For our first-time visitors, a, a special welcome to you, a warm welcome. We began studying the book of Mark, I think it was June 6th of last year. So if this is your first time, you've missed a wee bit, but that's all right. You can join along today as we study the 13th chapter together. Before we get there, I want to take you back in history, back 2,000 years, all the way to the first century A.D. Uh, Rome rules, the Roman Empire, engulfs most of Europe, North Africa, north of the Sahara Desert anyway, and much of the Middle East. In the year 66 A.D., the Jews revolt, rebel against Rome, and actually seize control of the city of Jerusalem. Rome sends several legions to take back the city. This is 66 A.D., and they encompass, they encircle the city for four years as they lay siege to Jerusalem. And finally, in the year 70 A.D., they take back the city. Josephus, the historian, an eyewitness, wrote the following. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Titus, he's the general, gave orders that they should now demolish the city and the temple. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground that there was left nothing to make one think it had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. Now, Ricky's going to put a slide up on the screen behind me. I can see it here. There it is. Now, that's the arch of Titus. For all I know, perhaps someone here has visited the city of Rome and you've seen the, this memorial, the Arch of Titus. It was actually constructed in the 80s, not the 1980s, the 80s. I think in the year 83, 84, uh, Titus, who was the general who oversaw uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, he actually became eventually the Roman emperor of the entire empire after he died. His younger brother Domitian, in celebration of his older brother's reign, had this memorial, this monument, constructed. The Arch of Titus used to be part of of an exterior wall. The wall is long gone. The arch has been uh, renovated. And you'll see on the next slide, there it is, a little mural. There are murals murals all over uh, the Arch of Titus. In this one... The Romans are depicted as they leave the city of Jerusalem. And if you can look in real close, it might be difficult for some of you in the back, but you can actually make out the candlestick. Do you see it? You see, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in the year 586, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, was lost. But some of those other articles which were found in the temple, they were preserved One of them obviously being the candlestick, and it was taken as plunder when the Romans burned the temple to the ground and utterly destroyed 
the city of Jerusalem. You can take away those slides now, Ricky. Thank you very much. Now, why do I raise all of this? Why do I take us on this journey back into history? There are a number of reasons. The most important one is this. Jesus Christ predicted this 40 years before it happened. Now, that should get your attention, friend. I am very skeptical of the skeptics' skepticism. Say that ten times fast. Not now, later. I am very skeptical of the so-called skeptics' skepticism. Here we have a verifiable historical event. The utter decimation at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 predicted, prophesied in detail by the Lord Jesus Christ four decades before it happened. We find it in Mark chapter 13. And so follow along now as I read this for us. We're going to go as far as verse 31 and leave the rest of the chapter, God willing, for next Sunday. So chapter 13, beginning to read in God's word, verse 1, and we're going to go as far as verse 31. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountaintops. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. But in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, if you're not in the habit of using the sermon notes in the bulletin, you might want to begin today. Uh, You'll find them, I I think anyway, from my vantage point, you'll find them very helpful. That was a long reading, 31 verses. We covered a lot of ground, great deal of material in there, and uh, much we want to touch on, much we want to address. And what I've given you in the sermon notes is, is a title, Eternal Words. It's taken from the last verse we just read, verse 31. And then I've given you five headings in bold print. And we're going to call these road markers. All right, we all know what a road marker is. We're on a journey, we're driving on the highway. And road markers indicate where we are, where, how far we've come, and how far we have yet to go. They keep us on track. And so these five headings in bold print, that's, how, that's what we're going to use them for. They're not inspired, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you'll find them useful. I'll find them useful anyway to keep me on track. It's so we don't get lost. So as we make our way through this expansive text, this, this sermon from the lips of the Lord Jesus, we know where we are at every point, where we've been and where we're going. So the first road marker, the first heading, very simply worded, the curse. And we find it in the first two verses. Look at what we read right at the outset of the chapter. And as he, it's Jesus, came out of what? The temple. He has been visiting the temple now for three consecutive days, going all the way back to chapter 11. He visited it on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, when he inspected it. And then he visited the temple again on the second day of the week, the Monday, when he cleansed it. And now he has come to the temple again on the Tuesday. He has engaged in a number of conversations. That's too soft a word. He has engaged in a number of arguments with the Jewish religious elite. And he has come really to curse the temple. And that's what he does now in the 13th chapter. And as he's leaving from the temple, he's exiting. One of his disciples, so he has the band of 12 around him, what does he say? Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's amazed. The disciples are amazed. Remember, these are country boys. 
They're from Galilee. They're fishermen. They don't get out to the big city too often. But here they are in the big city, and they are just overwhelmed by the magnitude and the splendor and the glory of the temple. The temple occupies about a sixth of the entire city. It is enormous. We need to be clear here. This is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, 586, Nebuchadnezzar. They burned it to the ground, and they took captives from Judea, men like Daniel. Do you remember those stories out of the Old Testament? But there was a decree issued by a later king, Cyrus, which allowed a remnant to return from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem so that they could reconstruct the temple. We looked at that. Those of you who have been here for any time, let me just remind you, we looked at all that last year. I think it was in the spring when we studied the books of Ezra and Haggai. They rebuild that temple. When they've just simply finished the foundation, the people weep. Some of them are so excited. Some of them are weeping. Why? Because they're depressed. Why? They remember the first temple. And they know that this second temple is rather pathetic in comparison to the first temple. And it was rather pathetic. It was not constructed to the same magnitude and extent, the same glory as Solomon's temple. But Herod, now we're right up to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod, the ruler over Judea, had instituted another renovation project. It took three or four decades to complete. And he turned the temple into something magnificent. And the disciples, as they're leaving the temple, wow, Lord, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Apparently, some of these stones were downright enormous. They found one stone. I think it was 42 feet in length. 42 feet in length, 11 feet, 14 feet wide, 11 feet high, weighing over 500 tons. Teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus isn't very impressed. Verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That is a curse. That is a declaration of approaching judgment. Second road marker, the question Brings us into verses 3 and 4. They leave the temple. They climb the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. That's what we read at the outset of verse 3. So they have a great view of the temple in its entirety. Four of the disciples, they're named. Peter and James and John and Andrew. Usually we read of Peter, James and John together, don't we? But somehow Andrew snuck into this little elite group and he's there nearby. They ask him privately, tell us. Here's what they want to know. Here's the question. Tell us, when will these things be? What things? What he has just declared in verse 2 concerning the judgment of Jerusalem, the throwing down of these great stones and buildings. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign? Give us some hints here. Give us some clues so we can see it coming. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So we're clear on his question. We've got the curse, very clear. You see, yes, you see these beautiful buildings. You see these these enormous stones. Not one will be left on top of the other. It is all coming down. They're they're, they're flabbergasted. When when is this going to happen? And give give us some signs as to exactly when so we can see it coming. And then we have Christ's answer. This is the lengthy portion. It begins in verse 5, 
And it really goes all the way to the end of verse 27. But I'm going to sever off verses 24 through 27 and keep them under a separate heading. And I think it will become apparent why I'm doing that when we get there. But just so we're clear, the answer really begins right there, yes, in verse 5. goes all the way to verse 27, but we're, we're just focusing in for a moment as far as verse 23. He gives an answer. They want to know when these things are going to take place. And so from verse 5 to verse 23, the Lord Jesus gives them a number of signs culminating in the sign of signs. Now, if you're a history buff, if you have any time on your hands, I want to recommend four resources to you because the resources are there. The historical records are there. And we can go back and see how these things were fulfilled precisely when it comes to the desolation of the city of Jerusalem. You can read the book of Acts. We read of some of these things right there in Luke's writing, the book of Acts, as we have it in Scripture. You can pick up Josephus's, the Jewish war. He was there. He was an eyewitness. You can get the annals of Tacitus. He was a Roman historian, first century. And you can pick up Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, He wrote a couple centuries later in the 4th century. But in those resources, in those historical records, we see these historical events, the historical fulfillment of all that the Lord Jesus speaks of and prophesies concerning in these verses. So first first off, he tells them that there will be false messiahs. Verses 5 and 6. He began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You are, you, you are entering confusing days. And there are going to be false Christs here, false messiahs there. There are going to be people running all over the place claiming to be the Christ, claiming to have a revelation from God. You are to avoid that deception. The second sign he gives them is military conflicts. And he speaks of these conflicts in verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. And we go back and we read Tacitus, for example, the Roman historian. And we learn right out of this time period of disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, Commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, war in Britain, war in Armenia. The entire kingdom empire is racked with war. And when we come to the year 68, 69 AD, so just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, in a matter of two years, the entire empire is in the grip of this ongoing, continuing civil war in which, in a matter of less than two years, there are actually five different Roman emperors. Wars and rumors of wars. Thirdly, he speaks of natural disasters. Right at the end there of verse 8, there will be famines. In, in the account in Matthew, the Lord Jesus speaks of earthquakes. And again, if we go back and we read the records, we learn of earthquakes at Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, Campania, Pompeii, and Rome itself. And then he speaks of violent persecution. 
beginning in the ninth verse. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. We see that in the book of Acts to begin with. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And so it begins with a Jewish persecution, the Jews persecuting the Christians. And you will stand before governors and kings. We've now moved beyond the Jewish persecution to the systemic Roman persecution, which really begins in 65 AD with the martyrdom of Peter and Paul under Nero in the city of Rome. Violent persecution, signs, the beginning of birth pains. And then we come to the final sign, the sign in which they all culminate, the abomination of desolation, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, and now Mark inserts a parenthetical note, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. What is this abomination of desolation? There is an Old Testament context. You pick up the book of Daniel and you read it cover to cover. You'll find that expression four times. The abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. In that immediate historical context, it referred to a man named Antiochus IV who in the year 167 B.C. desecrated the temple. And so the Lord Jesus is taking something from the book of Daniel. He is taking something that is very vivid in the memory of the Jewish nation, Israel, Antiochus, and how he had desecrated the temple. And he is warning them, look, this sign is coming. It will be an Antiochus-like abomination. Something is coming. And he is pointing to the Romans. He is pointing to their eventual desecration of the temple. As Luke records it, he inserts another detail in his account of this same sermon. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. The Lord Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. The abomination of desolation. And now the Lord Jesus, having given these signs, false messiahs, military conflicts, natural disasters, violent persecution, the abomination of desolation, he reiterates his warning in verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so think of the three markers that we've looked at so far. We began with the curse. Verses 1 and 2, you see these stones, it's all coming down. The temple, the entire city. That leads to a natural question. I would have been asking the question too, when and what will be the signs? And then the Lord Jesus gives his answer, these signs culminating in the abomination of desolation. And he issues this warning, you must be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And when they see these signs, what are they supposed to do? They are to run for their lives. They are to flee. 
They're not to take any time, go back to their homes and pack a suitcase. No, he conveys this sense of urgency. When you see these signs, it is time to flee Jerusalem. When you see these things happening, it is time to get out. And don't pay any attention because this will just be the peak of all those false messiahs and false Christs who will be running around with their eschatological fever and frenzy. You're to pay no attention to them. You are to get out of the city of Jerusalem, especially when you see those armies coming. And here's a wonderful historical fact, friends. You go back and you read Eusebius. Josephus also testifies to this. I think Tacitus does as well. When you go back and you read the historical record from 66 AD to the final destruction and overthrow and the burning of the temple in 70 AD, very, very few, only a handful of Christians were actually killed in Jerusalem. Why? They were all gone. They had all left. They saw the signs coming. And when they saw these signs coming, they did not listen to these religious zealots, these religious nuts among their countrymen who wanted to actually fight against Rome. No, when they saw these signs coming, they understood that the curse was drawing near. The day of reckoning was drawing near. And they fled to the mountains. Now the next road marker. It's still part of the answer, but I'm severing it off and distinguishing it a little bit. And you'll see why in just a moment. The prophecy. Verses 24 through 27. And I want you to notice two things, two features which are very, very, very crucial here. When we enter into verse 24 and read 24, 25, 26, 27, we see that, that the style changes. It shifts. It's no longer sermonic. Jesus himself becomes a little what? Apocalyptic. And he begins to employ language from the Old Testament out of the book of Isaiah. Some pretty obscure passages for most of us out of the book of Ezekiel, out of the book of of Joel. Important for us to understand that, that there is a definite shift. It becomes apocalyptic. Second thing that's important for us to understand is is what he says right at the outset of verse 24. He appears to differentiate, doesn't he? He appears to be making a subtle distinction. But in those days, after that tribulation, what tribulation? The one he has just described in detail from verse 5 to verse 23. And so he seems to be differentiating between a couple of things. And what we need to understand, and just wake up if you're beginning to fade because this is tricky. I won't pretend otherwise. Uh, What we need to understand when we enter into the realm of, of prophecy, and this is so key for interpretation, there is such a thing known as the prophetic perspective. I know this is tough, but just bear with me. Very important. There is such a thing known as the prophetic perspective. What do we mean by that? You go back into the Old Testament, and we have the same thing right here in the words of the Lord Jesus. When it comes to prophecy, especially prophecy, which is an apocalyptic, symbolic language, there is almost always an immediate future and a distant future. In other words, the apocalyptic prophecy points to something which is immediate, right there in view, in front of the people to whom it is given. But it at the same time launches way into the future and points to something else. It gets real confusing. You know why? 
because at times it is, it is exceedingly difficult. I can't pretend otherwise. I find it exceedingly difficult to differentiate between that immediate future and that distant future. And so if you've ever driven out of northwest Texas, we did this a couple summers ago, and you just cut through New Mexico for a couple hours, and you're crossing to Colorado. And eventually you come, you see, you get this glorious sight of the, of the Rockies. When you first see the Rockies, these mountains from a distance, uh, they, it's difficult to differentiate them. It all looks like one mountain range. It's difficult to, to get a sense or a feel for the distance between the mountains. But once you get close, or if you were to fly over them, you will see that mountains, which appear to be very close from a distance, in, uh, in actual fact, can be hundreds of miles apart. That's the problem, the issue we deal with when we enter into prophecy, which is of an apocalyptic nature. We need to, it's a key interpretive tool called the prophetic perspective. That in prophecy, there is an immediate future. There is a distant future. As the prophecy is given from our perspective, it is extremely difficult to discern what is the distance between the two. And so as we read this, verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, we might assume this is something that follows directly on the heels of that tribulation. But I actually think there is a great interval here. And the Lord Jesus, in verses 24 through 27, still has that immediate context in view. He still has the immediate future in view, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, but he is now transporting us beyond that immediate future to a distant future, the consummation of all things. And he speaks of three things. Verse 24, these signs in the sky, these climactic events, the sun will be darkened, verse 24. The moon will not give its light, verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven. Notice what he says in the rest of the verse. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. You go back and you find similar expressions in the Old Testament. And by and large, this apocalyptic language refers to what? The overthrowing of kingdoms and dominions. And then he shows us a second thing in verse 26, a reference to himself. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, you can read of that in the Old Testament. These are metaphors for his judgment. And then a third thing, verse 27, he will send out the angels, it's angelos in the Greek, we could just simply translate it messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. The immediate future. Yes, undoubtedly, he still has the destruction of Jerusalem in view. He still has that coming curse, that coming judgment, when yes, these, these apocalyptic signs in the heavens, not literally but symbolically, pointing to the overthrow of earthly kingdoms, the coming of the Son of Man in clouds, great power, great glory, a reference to his judgment and his vindication in the destruction of Jerusalem. Some would even say, as we move into verse 27, that even then, at that time, we have the sending out of his messengers. It is the institution of the gospel age and the going forth of the gospel and the gathering of the people of God from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, constituting the kingdom of God, the church itself. There is an immediate future, but it launches us into the distant future. The consummation of all things, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the final judgment and the renovation of heaven and earth. And then the final road marker, verses 28 through 31, the exhortation. 
from the fig tree, says the Lord Jesus, right at the outset of verse 28, from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So we see the flowers pop up through the ground, we know summer is near. We see the buds on the trees, we know summer is near. That's all the Lord Jesus is saying here. Look, you know, you know, how, to, you know how to tell when summer is coming. You can look, for example, at a fig tree. And when it becomes tender and uh, the leaves begin to show themselves, you know that summer is just around the corner. He's making a comparison. I have just given you, he's saying, the signs whereby you will know when this desolation, this curse is about to fall, when it will just be around the corner. Verse 29, so also when you see these things. What's he referring to? Everything he said from verse 25, verse 5, certainly all the way through to verse 23 at least. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he, it's a reference to himself, the Son of Man is near at the very gates. And here's a wonderful statement. Truly I say to you, this generation, remember to whom he is speaking, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. And then verse 31, to finish it all off, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I want to draw from these verses three crucial implications. This may seem funny to you. Uh, It seems funny to me even now as I say it. But as I read these verses, they actually make me thankful. That may seem to be an odd response, but maybe it will grab your attention. As I read these verses, they make me extremely thankful. And I think those are the three, I'm going to summarize these three implications in terms of expressions of gratitude as I read these verses. Number one is this, it's very simple. I am thankful, as I read these verses, I am thankful God has provided a way to escape his judgment. Oh, praise God, I am thankful. I am extremely, exceedingly thankful that God has provided a way to escape his judgment. Uh, He provided a way through the Lord Jesus for the church of the first century to escape that coming temporal judgment curse as it fell upon the city of Jerusalem. That destruction, that judgment points to a far greater judgment that is coming. And I praise God that he in his mercy, in his grace, has provided a way to escape his judgment. Paul writes in his second epistle to Thessalonians, one day the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. That's the way he has provided, by which, through which, we escape his judgment. It is the gospel. I declared it several Sundays ago. Let me repeat it for clarity's sake. The gospel is what? It is the good news. That God saves whom? Sinners. From what? His wrath for his glory through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful illustration, one of my favorites now. I actually used it in a different context yesterday. Something I read a couple of years ago. 
of a rancher in West Texas. As he was out far from vehicle, far from horse, far from anything. This is back in the late 1800s. And he sees the wildfire coming, the prairie fire, the grass fire approaching. He can't outrun it. There is nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to take refuge. The wind is blowing it directly to him. What does he do? He simply turned away from the fire and he ignited another fire. And that second fire, the wind then blew away from him. And he simply waited. And as that first fire grew closer and closer and closer, what did he do? He crossed over onto where that second fire had already burned and he stood on that charred ground so that when that first fire reached him, there was nothing left to burn. Friend, do you understand? If you are going to escape God's judgment, you must stand where it has already burned. It is that simple. If you are to escape the coming day of vengeance, that's not my term. That's the term we just read out of 2 Thessalonians. That's the Bible's term. If we are to escape that terrible day of reckoning, if we are to escape that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men, your secrets, my secrets, I must make certain I am standing where the fire of his wrath and judgment have already passed. That is Calvary's cross. God saves sinners from his wrath. God saves sinners from himself, his wrath, to himself for his glory. How? There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses make me extremely thankful. They make me giddy. I am thankful. God has provided a way to escape his judgment. Second implication is this. I am thankful God's rule is abundantly evident in human history. God's sovereign rule for anyone, any thinking individual who cares to take a look at the facts. I am thankful that God's sovereign rule is abundantly evident in human history. Christianity is a historical religion. You understand that, friend? It is a historical religion. It is a factual religion. Christianity is all about what God does in history. From the creation to the consummation, God carries out his plan of redemption. Now let me, let me really test you this morning. Let me just try to lift you up a little bit and give you a, a panoramic view. You go all the way back to chapter 1 of this book, the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. And Mark introduces his gospel account, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember, those of you who have been here, do you remember what the very next thing is he does? He quotes from the Old Testament. What book does he quote from? The book of Malachi. So having introduced his book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he immediately, first thing he does, is he quotes from the book of Malachi. Why? He is setting his entire narrative, these 16 chapters, in a historical context. A context established by the book of Malachi. And if we go back to that last Old Testament book, you read the first five verses of chapter 3, you read all of chapter 4, which only consists of five or six verses, you will discover that God, through his prophet, prophet Malachi, he promised that he would send his messenger. And that his messenger would prepare the way before the messenger of the covenant. He promised it. And so Mark, he 
goes all the way back to the book of Malachi, and he makes the point right at the outset that God has fulfilled his promise. The messenger has come. It's John the Baptist. The messenger of the covenant has come. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then back in the context of Malachi, the very last prophecy in the Old Testament, you know what it is? It's a curse upon all those who will not listen to the messenger and the messenger of the covenant. That is Mark's message. The messenger has come, John the Baptist. The messenger of the covenant has come, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, the Jews, have rejected John. They have rejected Jesus. Jesus, as Malachi prophesied, he's going to come to the temple. And he comes to the temple in chapter 11 on the Sunday and he inspects it. He returns on the Monday and he cleanses it. He comes on the Tuesday and he curses it. 500 years, nearly 500 years after Malachi first spoke of it. Understand, friend, God is the God of history. Christianity is a historical religion. It is rooted in historical fact. That's why I said kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'll repeat it now. I am extremely skeptical of the skeptics' skepticism. How do you explain that kind of biblical unity spanning centuries and multiple authors? How do you explain it, this one central message focusing on God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the sovereign hand of God? And now we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself claiming my words are eternal. He himself now uttering the curse which Malachi warned was going to come if Israel rejected the messenger and the messenger of the covenant. They rejected John, they rejected Jesus. The curse now is proclaimed and the curse falls just as he foretold in the year A.D. 70. I am thankful that God's rule is abundantly evident in human history. Just before we leave that point, flip back to chapter 12 just for a moment because there we have it stated wonderfully as the Lord Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 himself. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 10. He says, have you not read this scripture? He's referring to Psalm 118. The stone, speaking of himself. This is, the, this is fascinating. The stone that the builders rejected, referring to himself, the Jewish religious leaders have rejected and the nation has rejected him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of what? A new building. And so their rejection actually became the means of the construction of this new building, a spiritual temple. And look at what he says in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is God's plan. This unfolding of history is simply the unfolding of God's sovereign plan from creation to consummation. And even Israel's reject, rejection of the cornerstone gave rise and birth to what? A far greater temple. Make no mistake, friends, when we turn over to chapter 13 and the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, do you see these great stones? He's not impressed. I tell you, not one will be left on the other. The nation's rejection of me is ushering in a day of judgment, vindication. But understand this, it is happening in perfect accordance with God's will because the end of that physical temple will give rise to something far more glorious which will eclipse any glory Solomon's temple ever had. It is that temple, the body of Christ himself, in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I am thankful God's rule is abundantly evident in human history. And number three, I am thankful. This is the main point of the text. 
I am thankful God's word is eternal. God's word is eternal. And that's Christ's point in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, consummation of all things. But my words will not pass away. Friend, that is a claim to deity. My words will not pass away. He is placing his words on par, on level with Scripture, the eternal word of God. Why does he do that? Why does he give this sermon, bring it to a head with this wonderful proclamation, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away? It's simply because he has just shared with his disciples some pretty horrendous details, hasn't he? He has just shared, I mean, talk, talk about just throwing a wet blanket over the party. Talk about depressing. Uh, boys, here's what's going to happen. This temple that you're, you're standing there with your mouths, your chins almost, you know, hitting the ground, th- th- this temple is going to be destroyed. He promises them three things. He warns them that there's going to be a great deception. He warns them that they're going to experience terrible affliction. And he warns them of, of these days of unprecedented persecution. Talk about depressing. But he brings it all to a head here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You must endure through this deception. You must endure through this opposition and affliction. You must endure through this persecution. You must remain on guard. And here is how you will remain on guard. Here is how you will persevere. Here is how you will endure. It is by resting in this unalterable and unchanging fact that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are eternal. Friend, that has direct application to you right now. We live in days of great deception. You just need to turn on the television. You just need to listen to what is espoused out there. There is deception on our right. There is deception on our left, behind us, in front of us. We are surrounded by deception. We are surrounded. We live in a day of of affliction. Uh, We live in mortal bodies. And we we live with the reality of mortal bodies. We live with the reality of living in a fallen world in which sin wreaks havoc. We live with that daily, experience it daily. And we live in days of persecution in which the Lord Jesus Christ, as he has always been, is the object of the world's enmity. And anyone who dares to stand fast with Christ and truly follow Christ, truly preach Christ, you can bet your bottom dollar on it. You are in for persecution. You will experience, in some measure, small or great, the world's enmity. How do we endure? How do we persevere? We lay hold of this truth and we do not let go. It's right there in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Wonderful little word. It's used three times in this text. It's the word elect. For the sake of my elect. For the sake of my elect. For the sake of my elect. You see, there are a people who constitute the apple of God's eye. There are a people who constitute the body of Christ. There, is, there, there, there are a people who, who make up this wonderful covenant of grace and find themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the object of God's delight because they are found in the object of his supreme delight, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he always has his elect in view as he unfolds his eternal plan in history. And despite the deception, and despite the prevalence of affliction, and despite the possibility of persecution, 
He makes this unchanging, unmovable promise that he will bring us to the end. Here was an old hymn years ago. I dug this one out just this past week. And let me just share a stanza with you as we, as we conclude. And I pray this will be encouragement to most of us, if not all of us here this day. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife. When the strong tides lift and the cables strain. Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Heaven and earth might pass away. It will pass away. But the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, my words will not pass away. Our Father, we rejoice in that great salvation which you have secured for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in him as our prophet, priest, and king. And we pray that he would come now as a prophet and by the Holy Spirit grant us understanding, grant us illumination, and incline our hearts heavenward, incline our hearts to your word. May we truly take deep within, may it be implanted within all that we have heard this day. And we seek it from you for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.